Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. Um, I'm Rosie Dawson and this is the podcast in which I talk to scholars and activists who are wanting to shine a light on the ways in which religion and the Bible can be used to support or to challenge sexual violence. Today I'm joined by Caroline Blythe. She's Senior Lecturer in Theological and Religious Studies at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And Caroline you were in at the very beginning of the Shiloh project. Yes, I was. Um, me and Katie and Johanna, uh, we all met up in Leeds a few years ago now, in 2016 or 17, if I remember, and we uh, decided to start the Shiloh project. And who had the brainwave of the name? Well, I think, I can't remember. I think Katie and I initially wanted to create like a centre so it would be the centre for the study of religion, rape, culture and the Bible. And I'm sure Johanna said, that's too long. <laughs> so one of us, and I honestly can't remember which one of us, uh, thought up the Shiloh project. So you'd already been working in this area. Tell me how you'd got interested in it. Um, well, it's strange because before I became a biblical scholar, I used to be a nurse. I worked in mental health nursing and... So everything for me had to be practical. I was all about, you know, if, if I did something, it had to matter. It had to make a difference. And so I think when I started studying the Bible, that was my focus. And so I became really interested quite early on in the way that the Bible impacts people's lives today and how it's used and misused in contemporary contexts to reinforce harmful ideologies about all manner of things. Um, including gender violence and rape culture. And so I think that's where I got my, my focus. And I did my master's dissertation and then my PhD looking at um, how biblical texts often echo or reinforce or are used to reinforce quite harmful uh, stereotypes and ideologies around rape culture. So today we're not looking so much at specific biblical texts and stories as much as what has been done with them for a particular target group, which is teenage girls. And you've written about this for the Routledge series on rape, culture, religion and the Bible. Uh, tell me the name of your book. The, the book's called Purity, Culture, Rape, Culture and Coercive Control in Teen Girl Bibles. Now, um, I, I think we should be a little bit autobiographical here for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, if we can think as far back as to when we were teenagers, around late 70s, early 80s, what were the messaging that you got in your sort of church and religious community around the, that time about sex, purity, relationships? Um, to be honest, I don't think it was spoken about much at all, other than the, the very sort of bog standard, no sex before marriage. But it wasn't drummed home. Um, I think sex was just something that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't discussed in my church settings. Um, and there was certainly no purity messaging, um, even though that was a time, the, the 80s, the 1980s was a time when it started to sort of resurface, particularly in the US, but it didn't seem to get over to the UK, certainly in, in my church circles. I grew up in um, an evangelical church and um, it certainly never appeared in the sort of Bible reading notes that I was using with my Bible, daily Bible reading. Mm. I got a little bit of it at church and I did notice, I think, then that the messaging was different for girls and for boys. You know, I think I got the message, you know, that yeah. boys couldn't control themselves and, you know, it's up to girls to sort of manage it. Um, right. But clearly something has really sort of developed since then. And we use the term purity culture 
to describe it. Can you define purity culture for me? Yeah, it's um, basically rooted in an ideology that measures girls and women's social value according to their virginity or their, and their, chast- or their chastity. So it's, it's basically uh, saying that a girl or a woman who is sexually active outside of marriage is impure or will be displeasing to God. So premarital sex is the, the, the ideal. That's the way to preserve your purity and nothing else will do. Um, and in essence, it's, it's basically sort of fetishising virginity, uh, particularly female virginity, because as you say, I think it's very much more directed at girls than it is at boys. And it's really looking at girls to be non-sexual, beings until the day that God decides that they marry a man. I think um, the what's grown up around it, particularly in the States, isn't it, is a whole merchandising enterprise that things are sold. You know, there's the purity ring that you wear. There are purity balls where your dad promises that, you know, he's going to help you be pure until you're married. There's, there's, it's, it's an enormous marketing, money-making business. Yeah, it is. And I think there's a, Linda K. Klein wrote a a beautiful book about her own experiences of growing up in a purity culture. And she talks about the purity industry, uh, which is, it is right. There's so many commodities. Now there's self-help books, there's these Bibles, uh, there's purity rings that teenagers are encouraged to wear. There's purity balls, as you say. It's a bit like the equivalent of a First Communion for Catholics, isn't it? In the sense that they dress up in white. Yes. Yeah. Or, or you could actually say it's... it's it, it always reminds... When I watch some... I watch some videos of them and it reminds me of a strange marriage ceremony between... Or, or a prom. Yes. But, but a, a marriage ceremony between a father and a daughter um, because they're, they're kind of... The daughter's pledging her sexuality to her father and it's, I find it very disturbing. It's very, very popular in the States. Yeah. Uh, but you feel that it's, it's, its tentacles have reached far beyond that? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I know I've spoken... I, I teach a, a course on sort of gender, sexuality and religion here in Auckland in New Zealand, and um, I'm, I'm constantly amazed by the number of students who... female students who come and say to me, oh, this... this I, when I talk about purity... They just say, oh, God, this really resonates with me. Um, This is what I grew up with in my school. And if they go to a a Christian school, what happens here in New Zealand is that uh, religious schools get to really dictate the curriculum. They don't have to follow a kind of national standard. And so they get like abstinence-only sex education rather than uh, what other kind of secular schools would get, more kind of safe sex education. Um, but they they really talk about how it's it's been part of their lives and uh, how how disturbing it has been uh, for them to live through. So in your book, you're looking at um, teen Bibles for girls, and you look at three, which are they're called True Images Bible for Teen Girls and Revolve. Just talk a little bit to me about what what the main characteristics of those Bibles are? I mean, they're, obviously they're different between themselves, but broadly, yeah. what are they doing? Um, so they're, they're all marketed to girls in that they're very pink and pretty and they have lots of flowers and butterflies and love hearts on them. And if you open them up, you've got the, the biblical text is there, but inserted into, I would say, nearly every page 
is a small editorial note. Um, uh, True Images has features such as sort of genuine notes or, or dare to believe notes that kind of reflect a little bit on a biblical text. Uh, Revolve have what are called daily devos, which again take maybe one or two verses from the text that the that it's situated beside, and and use it as a sort of life lesson to give a life lesson to girls. Uh, and there's also lots of other features. We have uh, ladies of the Bible. And uh, True Images has what, what they call mirror images profiles, which takes, a, I think it's, it's almost like a problem page kind of column that a, a fictional girl will talk about a particular problem that she's having, whether it's with friendship or boyfriend or family or eating disorders or, or some other sort of mental health issue. And we'll talk about it and then advice is given to them. Um, in order to kind of get them to reflect on it through a very sort of evangelical Christian lens. And there's one feature in one of them called Love Notes from Dad. <laughs> yes, yes. These are, are quite terrifying. They're, they're in the True Images Bible and they look, on the page, they look like someone has stuck a pink post-it note on the page. And this is embedded within the biblical text. And they're written in a kind of curly cursive font, like handwriting font. And they start with like beloved or dear daughter, uh, something like that. And then it's a little note that, that is then signed either God or your heavenly father or sometimes dad. So there's a real connection being made between uh, God and sort of father, the father figure, the, the patriarch in the family. And I remember being very disturbed by these when I saw them because I, I just thought, you know, imagine if if you had a book, your book that you had, you know, lying beside your bed on your bedside table and you opened it up and you found some kind of <laughs> love notes stuck in there that, de declaring love for you. It, it's, it's almost very stalkerish. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what it's trying to do or what it's trying to achieve. But it's interesting the the Teen Guy Bible, the equivalent of True Images called Revolution, does not have love notes in it from God. So it's very gendered. And we've got a nice name there, haven't we? Revolution. You know, yes. For, big, yes. for tough guys. Yes. And it's all about action. Um, I think the, the teen girl Bibles I looked at were all uh, reinforcing girls' passivity. They, they couldn't do anything. Um, they, had to, they, were, they were unsafe. They needed to rely on God. They were helpless and hopeless without him. Uh, whereas the boys, the teen guys' Bibles, it's all about, look what you can do. You've got to go out there. You've got to make change and create and, and act, action and, and create difference in the world. Um, so again, so the, the language is really, really gendered. The, the Bibles have lots of pictures of wholesome girls in them with very straight teeth, I'm sure. Um, are they always white girls? No, they're, they're not. I mean... Two of the Bibles I looked at had glossy inserts in them, like Teen Girl magazine inserts. Um, and they had photos of girls that, that and, and some of the girls were, were brown skinned girls, um, although not a huge amount of them. Um, but I did notice in two Bibles I looked at, there was a strange equation between uh, sort of, you know, girls of colour and sexual violence. Uh, one of the, the mirror images profile in True Images, it's about specifically about rape. The girls, like all the girls get a kind of like a name 
Um, and the girl's name for that particular profile was Ebony, which you, you associate with, with a girl of colour. And there was another Bible I looked at, uh, which I didn't write about in the book because it was a, um, it's out of print now, but it was an earlier version of Revolve, which looked more, it was like a Bible zine. Um, and their profile on rape, it was illustrated by a photograph of a, a brown-skinned girl um, crying. So it's, I think they, these Bibles really do kind of champion a certain, sort of the idealised teenage girl as, as being white um, and pure um, and nothing else will really do. I just want us to look really briefly at, at two stories of women in the Bible and the message that they're used to convey in teen Bibles and then we'll move on to um, some other stuff. Um, so Hagar, she's the slave of Abraham and Sarah. She's forced to conceive and bear a son for them. And then she's forced to flee with her son to the desert where she is destitute. Just tell me what use is made of her in terms of, you know, the message given to the reader. Uh, which, no, I mean, not much it, it, in, in the sense that there's no acknowledgement at all that, that she is raped by Abraham, that she has no right to consent to, to Sarah's plan. And there, there is a little bit of sympathy for her in some of the Bibles. It's sort of, oh, poor Hagar, she was in a terrible situation. But the focus is much more on, on Sarah. And the lesson to be learned is that you shouldn't meddle with God's plans like Sarah uh, tried to do. And, and there's also, I think it's true images um, in her Ladies of the Bible profile it, girls are in, invited to kind of liken themselves to Hagar. But the, the lesson that they have to draw from her is that you, you can't look after yourself. Um, you've got to rely on God. Because I, I could just quote uh, from that Bible. It says, Hagar didn't know how to take care of herself on her own and she needed God's help. So it was almost like putting the blame on her. You know, it was her own ineptitude at looking after herself that got her into this situation. And it tells girls, like, don't be like Hagar, uh, and I'm quoting here, sitting in the desert, going nowhere fast. And so, again, it's her own fault that she's in this predicament. And there's, there's an, almost an erasure of the, the sexual violence that's oh, there, is, yeah. there in the text. Yeah, definitely, yeah. The other person I just want to talk a bit about is, is Goma. Um, mm. Tell me about Goma. Well, Gomer is figure that we find in the, the book of Hosea and she is Hosea, the prophet Hosea's wife and she's used in Hosea as a kind of symbol for the, the nation of Israel as um, she's depicted as a, an adulterous, unfaithful wife and so she represents Israel's unfaithfulness and infidelity to God and so God tells Hosea that you know he has to marry Gomer and they have children together and then he has to punish her for her unfaithfulness. And so he's told to, you know, to strip her, deprive her of water and keep her in captivity. And this is all kind of metaphorical language for what's happening to Israel at the time. It's being subjected to war. And what happens after that, after she's punished to the, the point that she says, like, I, I can't go on. I'm just going to have to return. She, she runs up. She, she's meant to leave Hosea, but she reaches a point where she says, I can't. Th this is worse than actually being with him. 
um, what he's subjecting me to. So she returns to him, at which point Hosea and God embrace her and say, our, our, you know, our marriages will go on, our love is eternal, um, as long as you're faithful to me. Um, so it's, it's really, and a number of feminist biblical scholars have written about uh, this text and, and pointing out how problematic it is for a metaphor of, of intimate partner violence to be used in a way that, that seems to give it sort of divine mandate, saying that it's, it's the appropriate and, and perhaps the, the ideal response for any husband whose wife is unfaithful. So what's the, what is the message that's given to the teenage girl reader? Um, the, mess- the main message that they get is that Hosea deserves our praise because he's the ideal husband. He's forgiving and he's loyal. And that girls, again, are, are encouraged to, like, don't be like, don't be like Gomer. Don't be unfaithful to God. Which worries me because they, there, there seems to be an implicit or else at the end of that statement. But it's, it's really normalising intimate partner violence, I think, as a, a way that, or, or a kind of natural or, or a necessary part of a marriage. I mean, one of, one of the Bibles talks about Hosea giving Gomer uh, mercy and grace that she didn't deserve. And I th- one of them talks about him, you know, being so loving to her and treating her as if she was his new beautiful virgin bride simply by accepting her back after her infidelity. So again, it's, it's erasing, I think that's the message, it's, it's erasing intimate partner violence or, or um, validating it um, as, as something that's, that, that God would approve of. And it's, um, I mean, the sexual faithlessness is a metaphor, even in the Bible, for the spiritual faithlessness, isn't it? So, you know, um, it's very, it, it would be very, it's very easy for, anyone to sort of think of the times that well, they've not been quite as faithful to God as they might be you know so here we have you know God brings us back and loves us even though we hurt him deeply don't let anything keep you from running back into the loving arms of God is is, is the message that is given and uh, readers are asked you know like Goma do you struggle to remain faithful to following God does your attention wander to other people and other things it's uh, sort of sets up um, anxiety I guess. Yes. You know, that's... Yeah, and it's, it really sets up divine control as well because that, that's what comes out in these, these biblical texts that, that use the marriage metaphor is that the wife has no voice and no, no choice. That she, she may want to leave that abusive, coercive marriage, but she has no choice. She she's kind of feels forced to return to her abusive husband because the, the alternative is too unbearable. And I think, yeah, if, if girls are getting that message that this is, this is how your relationship with God is going to play out, um, that it is really anxiety provoking. So I kept myself together throughout your book until I got to the chapter on coercive control. And then I have to say, I just found it so distressing. Um, we talk a lot about coercive control these days. Just, to, just list the main features of, of a relationship in which that is present. Sure, yeah. I mean, coercive control involves a a perpetrator using a series of tactics to subordinate, threaten and terrorise their victim to the point that the victim feels trapped in the abusive relationship. They're too scared to leave or or don't believe that they they can leave. So it's all about the perpetrator maintaining his control and power 
in the relationship and sort of bending his victim's will to, to make sure that uh, they don't have any power or control. And so these tactics include things such as, you know, threatening uh, the victim, humiliating her, degrading her and sort of downplaying or, or denying her, her abilities, um, gaslighting her to kind of confuse her and to make her doubt her own sanity, micro-regulating her life and micro-surveilling her life so that she feels she can't escape from the sort of ever-present gaze of her per- of her abuser. And, and that's also kind of woven into all that is also love bombing and what um, is sometimes called romantic terrorism in that it's, it's it, the kind of the abuser will um, switch between threats and humiliation and um, kind of pouring sort of love and affection onto the victim. And it's just a, it's a technique used to both kind of discombobulate them and confuse them even more, but also um, to kind of keep them there because they might stay on thinking, oh, well, maybe maybe things will change. Maybe he does love me after all. So, it's, But it's all very uh, deliberate and manipulative. And- so the, um, some of the Bibles, the teen Bibles, sort of use these um, images of, of God as a sort of, uh, well, when he's not dad, as a sort of, you know, romantic suitor. We're told in Revolve that God's love is more passionate than we can imagine. Day and night he pursues you, demonstrating his love for you. It thrills God to spend time with you. He runs to see you and loves to tell others that you are his. It, it's the ardent lover. Yes, the jealous lover as well, um, because that's one, you know, God's love uh, has to be, you know, it's, you you can't love God and someone else. Um, And, but yeah, the the romantic language is quite explicit. Um, I think there's one of the Bible says, you know, do do you need some FaceTime with God? You don't have to wait for his call. He's already said, come and talk to me. Let's get to know each other. And you know, I think, as I wrote in the book, if someone says to me, like, oh, hey, let's let's get to know each other, you know, it's not platonic. It's, it's definitely romantic language. But, yeah, it's quite, um, it's very prevalent in these Bibles, as in other evangelical Christian literature aimed at, at girls and women. But it is, it's, it's a romantic God, but um, a controlling God who, who insists that he is the one. Um, and that if, you know, even down to saying, I think some of the Bibles say to girls, you, you know, you might want a boyfriend, but don't forget, you know, that, that God is your real boyfriend and, and he's no one else will really ever take his place. So there's the possessiveness. God wants all your time, all your talents. Don't take any credit for it yourself. There's that sort of um, belittling um, I think there's so. I think that's where it almost says, you know, God wants you to feel small. It, 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 there is a lot of degradation and sort of de- denigration and humiliation, and it, I think that's that's probably one of the things that came out most persistently for me in these Bibles. It was constantly saying to girls, "Don't rely on yourself. You, you're you're nothing without God. You'll you'll make a mess of your life. You'll just do things wrong. Um, always rely on God." There's one from Revolve, there's a quote I've got here from Revolve, where it says, God saw you in all your sinful ugliness and loved you anyway before you were beautiful. His love, grace and mercy transformed you. Suddenly you were no longer ugly and unlovable. Oh, God, what of... a terrible thing for a teenage yeah. girl. 
I know. Yeah. I found um, this it, this quote about smallness. God loves it when a girl recognises her smallness next to him. Oh, yes. And yeah. at the same time offers him her best in everything she does. So God wants girls to know how totally insignificant they are. Yes, and they, they cannot take the credit for anything they achieve in life. It, it becomes unimportant. Um, like they're, they're, there's, you know, their grades, their achievements, they're, they don't matter. What matters is their obedience to God and their recognition that God, that they owe everything to God. The, um, the micro-surveillance is the bit I think I found most scary. Um, you know, this idea that there's no escape no. from from God. Um, no. I mean, you know, you've got that lovely psalm, haven't you? You know, where can I flee from your presence if I go down to the, the, the depths of the earth? You're there. If I go up to the, if I take the wings of the morning. I mean, there's that, it's, that's a beautiful idea of God being everywhere. But yes. here you've got, uh, you've got God as a stalker, you know, as you sort of said earlier. You do. And I, that's right. I mean, in some ways, God being present can, can be like a reassuring thing. But it's not framed that way at all in these Bibles. It's sort of saying to girls, God, even from the, the introduction to True Images, it's saying, you know, God looks down at the world and sees you. And then it's that, that kind of message is perpetuated through constantly telling girls, like, you not, must spend all your time with God. You can't escape from his eye. God knows what, what, you're, what you're doing all the time. He knows what's stashed in the bottom of your drawers or under your bed um you, you can't hide from him you're completely transparent in his eyes uh, and it reminded me of a you know, I was reading in a, a book about coercive control about uh, perpetrators who put uh, apps on their their victims phones without them knowing and they can actually track like where they're going and their emails and things and it gives them a sense of that divine omnipotence because they can terrorize the victim by talking or alluding to things that they shouldn't know. But it made that made me think that, that this is what God's doing in these Bibles. He's he's put a tracking app on girls and so they simply can't escape him. There's a, a, a love note from Dad Beloved, writes God, there are no secrets between us, absolutely none. I can see every text you send, every mm. picture you post and every thought you think. Yeah, which... It's threatening. Um, I, I don't think there's nothing reassuring about that. So I can see that this is really damaging in terms of um, a girl's spiritual life and, and her relationship with God. Um, it's, a, it's a perversion of, of that. What is it, what's your concern about the real life effects of messaging such as this on a girl's relationships with men? I mean... Any relationship with God is is would be seen within a sort of Christian worldview as as an ideal relationship, or you know it's not a flawed relationship in any sense. But I think what this is doing is is setting a nor setting these tactics of coercive control as as normal or natural or or even desirable within a relationship because you know if God's doing that, it's it's very hard to turn around and say actually you you shouldn't really be doing that, um, and so it's. Giving girls a, a, an implicit message that this this is okay, this is acceptable, and if someone is doing this to you, sort of love bombing you, gaslighting you, micro regulating you, then it's okay. It's a sign that he loves you because 
you know, God does it, so it, it can't be anything bad. What these Bibles do, these teen Bibles do, they go far, far beyond any the actual messaging in the Bible itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're proof texting the Bible quite significantly. And the, the, I think the editors have started with an agenda and have looked for texts that they can somehow manipulate into messaging around purity, around girls' passivity, around their helplessness. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the agenda is very much focused or rooted in that sort of complementarian understanding of, of gender that many more conservative evangelicals hold that you know men are meant are naturally meant to be the the head of the household they're they're naturally to have the power and authority and women naturally have to be subordinated to them and i think that's the starting point of these bibles and so the the editors pick and choose certain texts that may serve their purposes to reinforce that to girls. I mean, some of the messaging is about, you know, being different, not going with the world's priorities, you know. And yet, what is being reinforced are a whole lot of messages that are already out there in secular culture for teenage girls. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, they they claim to be... I mean, evangelical Christianity claims to be deeply countercultural, and it's constantly warning girls not to watch, you know, sort of secular films or listen to secular music or, or even have non-Christian friends. But yeah, I mean, there's, um, I think one of my, my students wrote a wonderful essay recently about purity culture. And, and she said, you know, the, that kind of um, the sec- secular culture and purity culture, we wouldn't imagine them being sort of bedfellows, but, but they are. They've got far more in common um, than we like to think, because these discourses around sort of shaming girls, sort of slut shaming girls for for having a a sexual identity or a sexuality, is is as secular as it is religious. So they really are. There's heaps of connections I think we can make. So um, now we're thoroughly depressed. How could things be different if teenage girls are going to read the Bible? How might things be different? I think we could create a teen girl Bible that looked at the biblical text with integrity. And so we don't shy away from these sort of texts of terror that are disturbing. We could use a story like Hosea and Gomer to talk about intimate partner violence and teach girls to recognise unhealthy relationships. Um, we could use the Bible not to shame girls about having a sexuality, but to talk about you know healthy sexual relationships um, and how to navigate these. We could use certain biblical texts like some of the prophets to talk about social justice and maybe encourage girls to uh, take, you know, encourage them towards activism or, or, you know, standing up for what they believe in their contemporary context. We could try to get them to see the Bible, if they're reading it as Christians, to see it as a, a book that can be inspiring, but also problematic as well but talk about these different elements of the bible in a way that helps them to sort of read it with integrity and we could also talk to them about the the picture of a god that is there in the bible you know of unconditional all-embracing love which is affirming and not demeaning and undermining yes yeah because that's that's the thing there there is the bible speaks with so many voices and portrays god in so many different ways and i think it would be really good to talk to girls about you know maybe talk them through some of the psalms 
and, and say you've got a, an angry God, a jealous God, but you've got a loving God as well. And don't ever forget that. And don't ever think that God is, is going to, you know, <laughs> God doesn't want to coercively control you. That, that's not a healthy relationship. That's great. Cass, thank you ever so much for joining me on this Shiloh podcast. Thank you. Come back again soon. I will. <laughs> um, and uh, that's all, everybody, for now. I'll be back uh, next month. Please subscribe to the Shiloh Podcast at the Shiloh Podcast or one word dot captivate dot fm or from wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Proj Shiloh.